Dr. Uh, Jim Del Rosso works at Dermatology Residency Director for Valley Hospital Medical Center in Las Vegas and has a private practice in Las Vegas in Henderson, Nevada. Uh, Jim's been a good friend to the society and to Derm PAs in general. And uh, I've known him a long time. He's been a, a very helpful. Please welcome Dr. Jim Del Rosso. Thank you. Hassan? Thanks a lot, Greg. It's certainly a pleasure to be here. Can everybody hear me in the back? How about those people talking in the back? Can they hear me? Everybody hear me in the back? Well, uh, I've been asked to talk about a, a potpourri of different things that relate to a lot of the therapies that we have, and I've pretty much nicknamed it inflammatory skin disorders, a jam session. And we're going to be talking primarily about different inflammatory skin disorders and different therapies that we have available. And as we go along, uh, depending on how we're doing time-wise, may open it up for a few questions here and there as we go along. Or if it seems like I'm falling behind, which I sometimes do, we'll, we'll wait to the end. But certainly the goal of this is to get you to go back to your practices, uh, the offices where you work, and employ some of this in your practices that you might see valuable. About four years ago, we started a dermatology residency program in Valley Hospital in Las Vegas, and I'm proud to say it's the first dermatology residency in the history of the state of Nevada. So there's only one dermatology residency in the state, and I have the opportunity to run it there, and we're very excited about it. Uh, these are the three residents that I have right now that uh, have, have been excellent, and I, and I love them dearly, but I'm not so sure how they feel about me. You'll have to ask them. Uh, we put them through quite a bit in terms of publications. If anybody's really paying attention to the literature, they all are very, very active in publishing, and we make sure of that. And if you have that opportunity, I'd suggest you do it, because... You're never going to understand something as well as if you have to truly explain it to somebody else verbally or in writing. Okay? Oh, knowing it just for yourself is one level, but when you have to put it in writing or you actually have to verbalize it to someone else or in a presentation or one-on-one, -on -one, it really takes you to a better level of understanding. So any opportunity you have to do that uh, periodically, I'd strongly recommend that. That's Steve Hawks. Steve Hawks is a, a, a physician assistant that I brought into my practice about six years ago. He's been a tremendous asset to the practice. I don't know that we could run the iPledge program in our practice if it wasn't for Steve. And then on the bottom there is uh, Lisa, certainly not on the bottom in my mind, but on the bottom in the photograph is Lisa Sangley, who's my nurse that's been with me since I started in Las Vegas. These two people, it'd be almost impossible for me to work successfully in the practice where I am in Las Vegas. And these are my residents after three years of publication demands, and, and I don't know that they're ever going to be interested in publishing once they get out, but they're certainly going to publish while they're in the program. How many of you have been able to get the Journal of Clinical and Aesthetic Dermatology? Hopefully you do, and if you don't, uh, I, hopefully you'll be able to by uh, going online or finding out uh, you know, how to get access to the journal and getting on the mailing list. I'm happy to mention that this journal has now received uh, from PubMed 
that it's going to be, in addition to being peer-reviewed, it's going to be indexed on PubMed. It takes about six months for them to get that process going, but we've been approved. So we're now a peer-reviewed and an indexed journal. We started it in May of 2008, and I'm the clinical editor for that journal, uh, and we're very, very proud of that. So hopefully this is also bringing you some valuable education. By way of disclosures, I do work with a variety of different companies. Uh, what I do with these companies is to review data and also clinical research and also organize and provide educational programs so I get to see a lot of material before it comes to market and that's really why I'm here today. My objective is to try to distill through a lot of information and try to separate what might be clinically useful from smoke and mirrors and may just be available for marketing purposes but not have much benefit behind it. And that's one of the challenges we all face because there is a lot of marketing in the world in general and pharmaceuticals is no different and sometimes it's very hard to separate what might actually be clinically valuable to you from just what's based on marketing without any scientific or therapeutic merit. So that's really the role that I play. And I want to start by talking about proper skin care. And I do this pretty much at every presentation that I give, if you've heard me present before, because I really feel that in dermatology practices, if we're not telling our patients how to care for their skin, they're going to get that information somewhere else. They want that information, whether you ask them for it or not, pretty much across the board, especially when you're talking about diseases like acne, rosacea, eczema, photo damage. It, it really doesn't matter. Certainly, if you're removing a skin cancer on a patient on their face, they may not necessarily be thinking on that day that you're going to be talking to them how to care for their skin. But pretty much across the board, it's really our obligation to be educating patients how to care for their skin. And even that skin cancer patient needs encouragement on how to photoprotect from that aspect of skin care. If we don't provide it, they're going to get that information somewhere else, and they're probably going to get it from a source that doesn't provide them very, very good information, either at a cosmetic counter or online or at a pharmacy where they're going up to somebody that's stocking shelves that just shows them what's on sale that day or doesn't necessarily understand what they need therapeutically. So we're in the best position to provide that. Why does the skin need moisture? We talk about moisturizing the skin all the time. Why does the skin need moisture? This is a drought, right? This is what the ground looks like in case of a drought. And the skin doesn't really look that much different when it doesn't have as much moisture as it, as it needs. But why does the skin need moisture? Because the enzymes that are involved in the natural shedding of the corneocytes from the, from the top of the stratum corneum, the top of the epidermis, are hydrolytic. They require a certain amount of water to function. When you get below that level of water, the stratum corneum doesn't desquamate normally, and you get clumps of keratinocytes that don't separate properly. The other reason is the skin needs a certain amount of moisture and needs to lose a certain amount of moisture, which is pretty much homeostatic, which is normal, for temperature regulation. So that's a very, very important function. But the reason why you have breakdown of the epidermis, why the stratum corneum changes, why the skin gets dry appearing and fissured, and then that can lead to an eczematous dermatitis, is because those hydrolytic enzymes are not functioning properly. Okay. 
and that's a very important component. So the new frontier seems to be the epidermal barrier. We hear about that all the time now. All of a sudden, the buzz phrase is, we're going to treat the barrier. We have device creams, we have barrier repair creams, et cetera, et cetera. So we keep talking about the barrier, but we have to really understand what that means in terms of treating dermatologic disease. There are two general methods, and these are gross measurements. These are not fine-tuned measurements, but they're basic measurements for looking at the moisturization of the stratum corneum or the moisture content of the stratum corneum, or the function of the stratum corneum. One of them is transepidermal water loss. And there's a normal amount of water moisture that you lose through your skin naturally. That's supposed to happen. When that increases above that amount, the stratum corneum doesn't function properly. And that's when you get that dryness, that flaking, that fissuring that occurs, what we call barrier dysfunction, epidermal barrier dysfunction. So when the transepidermal water loss number increases above the level that's normal, that becomes problematic. Then there's corneometry. Who knows what corneometry is? Corneometry is measuring electrical conductance through the epidermis. And what does water do? It helps conduct electricity. So when the corneometry reading goes up, that means there's more water content in the skin. When it goes down, there's less. So corneometry can be used as a measure of water content within the skin. And that's one of the ways that you would grade what's happening with a moisturizer or with a product or with a disease state on the skin, both through transepidermal water loss, what we call tool, or corneometry. So here's an example, and for the purpose of being able to recognize products quickly, I'm going to mention brand names of everything so it's an even playing field. So you can recognize it and not have to think back, well, which product is this, which product is that. And so that's fair balance because we're mentioning the brand names of everything. Desinide hydrogel is desinate gel. And that's one of the formulations where you're told it's a hydrogel, it's an aqueous gel, it's not one of those older alcohol-based gels. And to make the claim that it's moisturizing, you would have to show that it doesn't increase transepidermal water loss, but also that it improves corneometry. Okay? To say that something's not damaging to the epidermis or the stratum corneum, would say that it's not increasing transepidermal water loss, but it doesn't mean that it's moisturizing. And I'll show you an example of that shortly. But what this formulation actually does is it actually does provide some moisturization because it increases corneometry and it reduces transepidermal water loss. So it has both of those functions. So that's a very important, they're able to make that claim that it's moisturizing. But you have to be careful when the claim is made that a product is moisturizing. Okay. Now here's an example, and this is a comparison of Duoc gel versus Epiduo gel. And what they're essentially showing here in looking at transepidermal water loss is that there's a greater increase in transepidermal water loss with the Epiduo than there is with the Duac in this particular study. This is a relatively new study. And that's not unusual that something that has a topical retinoid might cause some increase in transepidermal water loss, even a, a less irritating uh, topical retinoid like adapalene. Okay. It's going to happen to a certain degree, so that's not surprising. 
But with the DUAC formulation, where they put in the glycerin and the dimethicone, they mitigate the damage to the stratum corneum. They only slightly increase the transepidermal water loss. So you can say that they're user-friendly to the epidermal barrier, but you cannot say that they're moisturizing. Okay? We don't have any corneometry data here to show that they're increasing the moisture content of the epidermis. So you can say that it's barrier friendly, but you cannot say it's moisturizing. So those are distinctions in how you might evaluate some of that data. Okay. So I'm going to show you some pictures. I said it was going to be a jam session. And these are, some of these are looking at the probably the relative age group of the people here. Some of these are concerts that, concerts that some of you might not be that interested in going to. But I love to go to concerts, and I have to be in the first row center. My attitude is the concert's for me, and I'm nice enough to let everybody else in. So this was Paul McCartney at City Field a few months back. And he's asking, do you know the difference between barrier protection and barrier repair? And by the looks of his guitar player, he's saying, what? What are you talking about? Okay, what are you talking about barrier protection versus barrier repair? But anyway, I came up with this concept in my mind, I take a lot of plane flights, have way too much time to think, and I came, was sitting there thinking, how are we going to differentiate all these products? It's, going to, it's very, very confusing when you have a new device cream that somebody brings in a new barrier repair cream or a new moisturizer. Well, I think about it with the term barrier care. And there could be two different things that are going on basically until a third or a fourth one comes along. Barrier repair and barrier protection. Barrier repair is essentially what most of these barrier device creams do, like a, or allegedly do, depending on their data. Atopoclair, Mimix, Elatone, Episerum, Okay, would be examples of that. Okay? Or moisturizers, or commonly used moisturizers, to some degree of barrier repair, or things like CeraVe, Cetaphil, you know, Aveeno, the whole line of moisturizers. And they're formulated differently. And their ability to provide barrier repair is different based on how they're formulated. The variety of different over-the-counter products uh, would also be the same thing, not necessarily only the prescription products. But we all brought these barrier repair creams that are these device creams. What they're doing is they are essentially trying to repair the lipids between the corneocytes, the keratinocytes of the epidermis. And when that lipid, when there's breakdown in that lipid, you get increased transepidermal water loss. So they're trying to repair that lipid as quickly as possible to repair the barrier so you don't lose moisture. That's barrier repair. Now, barrier protection is different. We really only have one prescription barrier protectant that I'm aware of that we're hearing about a lot now, and that's Tetrix. Tetrix is not a barrier repair formulation. It's a barrier protection formulation. It, fo it forms a layer on top which protects the epidermis from other things that may be applied or get in contact with the skin. So it's not providing moisturization, and it's not repairing the barrier per se, it's protecting the barrier. And you need to understand that distinction when you're looking at these. So barrier repair is to replenish intracellular lipids, maintain hydration of the stratum corneum, and reduce transepidermal water loss. And we have a newer formulation, one of the newest formulations we have, actually is composed of a physiologic lipid mixture. Okay? It's three times ceramides, 
to one-time cholesterol esters, to one-time free fatty acids. So it's basically designed to be the same ratio as the normal skin intercellular lipids. Okay? And there's a study that I'll show you that compares it to a mid-potency, low-range uh, mid-potency topical corticosteroid. Then there's barrier protection, and this is the Tetrix formulation, and this is designed to reduce contact allergy and irritant dermatitis, primarily for hands, is really what it's primarily marketed for, by blocking the exposure. And this is primarily contains what? Silicates. Okay. Silicates provide a certain amount of barrier protection, and they combine that with aluminum magnesium hydroxide stearate. Okay. So it's basically providing a layer of protection on the surface of the skin. And they did a variety of different studies, which I'll show you. Well, this first particular formulation, which happens to be Epicerum, they actually went back and said, you know, if we just come out with another formulation, it's going to be somewhat me too. We better do something to look at the therapeutic value of this. Otherwise, it's going to be perceived as only another moisturizer. Does it have therapeutic value? So they had Larry Eichenfeld and some others get together and look at this particular formulation. And Jeff Sugarman uh, was involved in this. I believe he spoke at this meeting earlier in the week. And they took children that had atopic dermatitis. The majority of them. Uh, they had 75% non-Caucasian skin types, okay? So they had a variety of, of mixture ethnicities in this particular study. And they looked at Epicerum versus Fluticasone. Fluticasone is Cutivate, okay? And they compared that in these two particular groups. When the face was involved with the Fluticasone group, they were given hydrocortisone 2.5% on the face. Why, I don't know. I would have felt comfortable in the study using the Fluticasone, but maybe the IRB required that. And they looked at a variety of different outcome measures. Now, the SCORAD, the SCORAD is a way of looking at what happens in atopic dermatitis. It takes into account several different things. 20% the area, the intensity score could be erythema, all the visible features, and then they also look at sleep and pruritus. So they try to look at the entire spectrum of what's happening in that atopic patient. So essentially what happened here, if you look at that score ad, which is like a global assessment of everything, what's happening with the patient over 28 days, this is with twice daily, what the Epicerum did was a 56% reduction in SCORAD versus 67% in the steroid group. So about a 10% difference. Pruritus, 60% versus 66%, so they were very close. Change in sleep disturbance, the improvement was about 74% in the Epicerum, 88% in the Fluticasone over the course of the study. So that based on this data, what they're telling you is we worked practically as good as a corticosteroid that you might use in this group of patients by not using a corticosteroid product. Now, you have to get from that what you think is going to be the actual therapeutic value, which would mean what? Okay? If you do this, if you give this particular product instead of giving the, the mid-potency corticosteroid, you have to decide whether you, when your patients come back, are they, are the parents, usually the parents are going to be with them, obviously, if they're kids, are telling you that this really worked as well as something that they may have used in the past. And you're going to find out if it's true or not over time. 
you're going to find that in your own clinical practice. Or another way you might do it is to use it with a corticosteroid and then stop the corticosteroid and then continue this on as more of a maintenance treatment. There are a lot of different ways to, to do this. The next thing I want to show you is ammonium lactate 12%, which is lachydrin. Now, lachydrin 12% lotion is now available over the counter. Okay? It's available by prescription and over the counter. The cream is only available by prescription. But one of the things that's true about ammonium lactate, lachydrin, is it's able to prevent corticosteroid atrophy, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But that was yesterday. Is anything else new? Okay. This is a patient that we saw a few months ago with ichthyosis vulgaris. And this is probably the, one of the more dramatic cases of ichthyosis vulgaris that I had seen. There's other forms of ichthyosis, obviously, where they can look a lot worse. But this is a fairly dramatic ichthyosis vulgaris in an 11-year-old. Bothered the mother more than it bothered the kid. Okay? The kid was playing with whatever game he had with him there, and the mother really was getting very bothered by this. Tried to use a lot of different things over the counter, got some things off the internet, you know, looking it up, fish skin, whatever, none, none of it really made a difference. Had one prescription product a few years before she couldn't remember the name of, but the situation had really never improved. So I thought about what was going on in this patient. What do we have available for this? We don't have a lot. We have moisturizers, we have salicylic acid, we might try ammonium lactate. We try a variety of different things that may or may not help as single agents. But I thought to myself, what is really going on here fundamentally if I think about the epidermal barrier? We have bricks and we have mortar. Okay? The bricks are the keratinocytes, the mortar is the lipid between the keratinocytes. Why wouldn't I try to address both? Because we know there's going to be a problem with both in ichthyosis. So what we ended up doing in this patient is we used lachydrin 12% lotion twice a day and epicerum twice a day. Put on one, then the other. The idea was to care for the bricks, which we're doing with the ammonium lactate, and to care for the mortar, which we're doing with the epicerum. So we're actually trying to correct both areas when we're treating the patient. So here's the patient before and after in a month. Dramatic turnaround. I had never in 23 years of experience, not that we have tons of ichthyosis vulgaris patients that are this bad or tons of them that are coming in all the time. A lot of them that come in, you don't even pick up. They have mild or dry skin. You don't even really know that they're ichthyosis vulgaris. But in my 23 years, I had never seen one turn around quite this dramatically. And whether or not it's related to the concept of caring for the bricks and the mortar, I don't know. But intuitively, I think that's the case. So I think that combination was what was beneficial in this particular patient. There's the one arm to the, you know, from before and after, dramatic turnaround, and we've been able to maintain this kid this successfully since then. It's about four months, three or four months out now. And that's on the back. It was very, very diffuse. So the idea of caring for the bricks and the mortar both at least worked in this particular patient. It may be something that you might consider. Now moving on to the skin barrier protection cream, this is a water impermeable product that's designed to protect the skin from allergens and irritants 
getting in contact with the skin, marketed for ham dermatitis. This is Tetrix. It has dimethicone, it has cyclomethicone, so it has a silicate protectant that forms on the surface of the skin. There are other silicate protectants that are out there that are available over the counter. They did a variety of different things. They showed it was not irritating in a cumulative irritation study. They showed that it prevented the effect of different allergens like nickel, neomycin, and fragrance in a small study compared to on the sides. They did bilateral side comparisons where there was no protectant cream. They showed that it didn't make an existing eczematous dermatitis worse. That was a very important thing because when patients come in, they don't come in clear unless you treated them and got them clear. And a lot of times then they don't come back. They don't come back a lot of times when they're better. They just don't show up a lot of the times. So when you're seeing them, they have the active disease. So if you wanted to treat them that day, let's say with a corticosteroid and put the protectant on top of it, would the protectant make it worse? Does it interfere with the resolution of the eczematous dermatitis? And it does not. Now, does it stay on after hand washing? Okay. Patients are at work, they're washing their hands, or people are at work, whatever they're doing, they're washing their hands, and they were able to show, Zoe Drelo show, showed this, versus an intensive care cream, that it, with multiple, you know, with, a, with an aggressive hand washing, that it had substantivity on the skin, as compared to another formulation. So this particular formulation does have substantivity with repeated washing. We can't tell you how many times they can wash without reapplying it, but I think it's important that they get it on at least a few times a day. But, it, but they don't have to put it on after every hand washing. Okay. Now, seborrheic dermatitis, all those scaly faces, where do they all come from? Some of you will recognize what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, where the heck is this guy coming from? But anyway, we're going to talk about seborrheic dermatitis. Seborrheic dermatitis is a condition that people think of the scalp and people think their scalp is dry. Is the scalp dry in seborrheic dermatitis? It's inflamed, okay? It's an inflammatory process. It's not dryness. It's an inflammatory process. But we're going to talk about the face, glabrous skin with seborrheic dermatitis. Okay? A newer formulation that's available, and this is the study uh, form number of the formulation, PSC0801, is a non-steroidal, it's actually approved as a device, so they cannot promote to you an active ingredient. It's called Promiseb. It's a relatively new product, and we were one of the sites that were involved in looking at Promiseb. Promiseb contains a variety of things, but one of the things it contains is glyceratinic acid, which is in what other device cream? Atopoclair has glyceratinic acid. Glyceratinic acid has been shown over the years to have some uh, anti-inflammatory effect. It does it by uh, affecting endogenous cortisol and, and the level of exposure in the skin. So it's like putting on a, a low percentage of, of hydrocortisone, okay, to some extent. It also has a peroctone complex, which has activity, antifungal activity, against malassezia. So that's why it was be promote, being promoted for seborrheic dermatitis. And in this one particular study, it was a relatively small study, about 30 patients in each group, but they were able to show that the seborrheic dermatitis did as well with the Promiseb as it did with the desinide formulation. Erythema reduction was about the same, 
and pruritus reduction was about the same. Is it going to work in everybody? No, not necessarily. Is it for the more severe cases that they need a corticosteroid? Probably not. But for the mild to moderate cases, it may be a non-steroidal uh, you know, alternative that I found so far a lot of the patients seem to like, not, not everybody, but a lot of the patients seem to like. Or if you have patients that have frequent flare-ups and you want to put them on something chronically, it could certainly uh, be used for that purpose. And you can use a corticosteroid when they have severe, uh, more severe flares where they need, need a short course for control. So I think that's one of the places where it might be helpful to you. Here's scaling about the same in both of the groups over the course of, of the treatment. Now another study that was done, and this was somewhat interesting because there was some feedback about patients with rosacea. And patients with rosacea have increased transepidermal water loss, whether they're just red, erythematotelangiectatic rosacea, or even if they're papulopustular rosacea. They have increased transepidermal water loss. So their skin is going to get dry, it's going to get flaky, it's going to get scaly sometimes. That doesn't mean they have seborrheic dermatitis. That can simply be part of the rosacea and it's why they have sensitive skin. But there are some people with rosacea that have, at the same time, seborrheic dermatitis. They have scaling along the um, eyebrows, the glabella area, the, around the melolabial folds, around the ears, around the hairline. They have classic seborrheic dermatitis, and they have rosacea. So it was brought up by um, uh, several dermatologists. If I'm treating a patient with therapies that we have for rosacea, how well are they also going to be able to handle seborrheic dermatitis if the patient also has seborrheic dermatitis? So I don't have to give them two products. Well, this was looked at with azelaic acid 15% gel, which is Phenacea gel, and it was shown to do pretty well in patients that had mild to low moderate level seborrheic dermatitis. So it may be another non-steroidal uh, product that you can use, or if a patient has an overlap of both diseases, they may not need two different products. They may do just fine with the Phenacea gel. And here's an example of a patient that was treated for that with nothing else, just the Phenacea gel did very well for this seborrheic dermatitis. Okay? This is Eric Clapton, First Row Center in, in Denver, one of the best concerts I've ever seen. He, it's amazing this guy's still alive with how much heroin he injected, but that's besides the point. It's amazing. But anyway, oh my darling, you look wonderful tonight, except for those dawn actinic keratoses that are looking sort of bad. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about actinic keratosis. Topolumiquimod, which is what? Aldaro. Aldara is available as a 5% cream in the little sachets, which is approved for a variety of different indications, but its approval for actinic keratosis was how? Twice a week for 16 weeks, and at the time, essentially all the drugs that the FDA had the manufacturers look at were little 5 by 5 centimeter square areas of involvement. So in the actual trials, they were actually looking at a small window of what happened with the actinic keratosis. That's not only true of Aldara, that's true of a, a lot of, you know, all the newer formulations. They only looked at a small window. Those of you who remember when Rogaine came out for hair loss, and it got promoted for hair loss, and all these guys would come in that had, were, were, had severe hair loss. I mean, they were essentially bald on the top, thinking that it was going to grow hair. 
Well, it didn't grow a lot of hair. And we knew that from the clinical trials because all we were doing were counting hairs in a small little two or three centimeter area. And if there were tiny little hairs coming in, they were counted as success, where in reality there was not a lot of increased hair growth. It would slow down hair loss, but unfortunately it was promoted for hair growth. So it's really hard to make judgments on looking at a small area. What the manufacturer has done is they've now tried to come up with a formulation that's more like real life. So the data on this particular formulation is full face or scalp greater than 25 square centimeters. So you're looking at treatment of the entire you know, unit, whether it be a scalp, a face, a back of a hand, whatever the case may be. So this is more real life. They also wanted to shorten the treatment course to just four to six weeks as opposed to 16 weeks and to make it once a day so that patients wouldn't have to remember, well, when's the last time I put it on? How many days ago was that? Am I using it too frequently to enhance compliance? And then to try to decrease the concentration to make it more tolerable. Anybody that's used the Miquimod Aldara realizes that patients have a range of response. Some patients get low-grade inflammation. Some patients get very intense inflammation. They were trying to even that out. So how is this done? There were studies that were done in a pretty large number of patients, just shy of 1,000 patients. The majority of them had facial involvement. The rest had scalp involvement. And you can see here that they had a reasonable mean number of actinic keratoses in whatever field it was. And they looked at two strengths and two different cycles, 2.5% or 3.75% in either two-week or three-week cycles. A two-week cycle, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. A three-week cycle, three weeks on, three weeks off, three weeks on. With all the different strengths, and they compared it to placebo vehicle. The way it has turned out, and this is probably, if this gets approved, what will come to market, okay, is the 3.75% in two-week cycles. So you'd, they'd apply it for two weeks on every day of the week once a day for two weeks, stop for two weeks, and repeat a second two weeks. Okay? So it compresses the duration of treatment, and the patients will apply it every day. Okay? So this is likely what you're going to see come to market. Now, that, that's Aldara. I don't know exactly if it comes to market, what they're going to name it. I'm sure they'll have the name Aldara in it, but I don't think it's gotten all the approval yet on what the actual name of the product will be. But that's what you can anticipate. Does it still cause inflammation? The patients still get red? Yes. You're still going to see a range of patients developing the inflammatory response, but you should see fewer patients having as much of a brisk response as you sometimes see with the 5%. At least that's what's being anticipated. Did, did they package it differently? To my understanding, and I don't know for sure, is it right now it's still going to be packaged the same way in a sachet. Still haven't gotten the packaging thing changed around to my knowledge, but I know they're working on that. Now, moving on to diclofenac, which is Solarase gel. Uh, I don't know how many of you have utilized Solarase gel, uh, but Solarase gel is a different type of therapy for actinic keratosis. And what does Solarase gel do? What does diclofenac do? If you gave it by mouth, what does it do? 
not the gel, don't have them swallow the gel, but if you gave diclofenac tablets, which were Voltaren, it's what? It's a COX-2 inhibitor, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Why is COX-2 interesting to us in treating actinic keratosis or treating the skin? Because COX-2 is upregulated, it's not there very much normally. COX-1 is, but COX-2 isn't in the skin. When you have actinic keratosis or squamous cell carcinoma, COX-2 is increased. Okay? So the thought process is if you decrease COX-2, what's happening? And there are a variety of different tumor models, solid tumors, internal tumors, where COX-2 inhibition has been shown to be helpful. So people looked at it in the skin. What happens when COX-2 goes up, apoptosis decreases. What's apoptosis? Cell death, okay? Apoptosis is what's going on in every one of us right now as our body is creating a cancer cell. And in every one of us right now, a cancer cell has been created, probably several, that your, your immune surveillance is so good that your cells are targeting them and they're killing them through apoptosis. So thank, thank God we all have apoptosis, okay? We have apoptosis going on as we speak. When COX-2 goes up, apoptosis goes down. So if the treatment brings COX-2 down, it gets you back into a normal apoptosis frame of mind, so to speak, okay? Gets your body back to a normal level. There's other things that, are, that happen too, angiogenesis and several other pathways, but that's the theory. So when you look at these treatments for actinic keratosis, whether it be 5-fluorouracil, whether it be, uh, which is what? What does 5-fluorouracil do? Effudex and Carac. It's a chemotherapeutic agent. It's a nuclear bomb. The cell dies, you get inflammation, you get irritation. Why? Because you're having cell death, direct chemotherapeutic effect. Amiquimod, what does amiquimod Aldara do? It recruits the host Im immune response. Diclofenac, Solarase, downregulates COC2. Three totally different mechanisms, so you'd expect the therapies to be different. That's why solarase tends to produce less irritation, but it takes longer to produce its effect. It's a slower therapy. You generally have to treat these patients for at least two, optimally three months, because you're downregulating an enzyme. It's like a rheostat, a slow turning of a rheostat. Okay? So that's the difference. Okay? It's important to know those mechanistic differences. If you look at the efficacy data, whether it's the target lesions, the target lesions means at the beginning of the study, they count the lesions that are there. The cumulative lesions are all the le subclinical lesions that also emerge during the study. So at the end of the study, patients treated twice a day for three months and they evaluated them one month later, you had about 80% reduction in all those lesions. Complete clearance, how many patients had all the lesions go away at the end of the study, about half, meaning they had no lesions left. Now, what about a year later? Okay. We have data on amiquimod. We have data on Aldara uh, with the, some of the original ways the drug was used to show, even with cycle therapy, we were able to show that a year later, you had a pretty good substantivity of the effect against the actinic keratosis. 5-fluorouracil not as good. 5-fluorouracil okay. is not precipitating an immune response. So it wasn't as good as Aldara if you looked at patients a year later. Okay. 
What about solar rays? Well, we do have one-year data now on solar rays from one of the studies. And essentially what happened is, if you look at the target lesions, about a 95% reduction in target lesions a year later, and about a 77% reduction in the cumulative lesions. So it's not 100%, but it held up pretty good a year later from the beginning with patients doing nothing else over the course of that year for their actinic keratosis. Okay. Any questions on that before moving on to the next, uh, the next topic? Okay. The next topic is corticosteroids. Hey, Barack, is there anything new with topical steroids? Boy, I'd love to turn on the TV and see that. That would be an absolute blast. And they do, uh, they do a good job. Okay. Ammonium lactate, 12%, lachydrin. What does this do if you apply it with a topical corticosteroid? Let's say clobetazole or halobetazole, which is Ultravate, which we have available now branded, okay? Or clobetazole. The studies were originally done with Temavate, okay? The clobetazole, Temavate. What happens? What happens is the ammonium lactate, and this was, study was done with lachydrin, increases the gag levels. You know what the gag levels are? Glucosaminoglycan levels, hyaluronic acid, which is a significant part of the dermal matrix, okay? Increases those and decreases the epidermal thinning, epidermal atrophy. So there is the benefit that like hydrin reduces, reduces atrophy. So now a study was done to see if the lachydrin with Ultravate, this is essentially the Ultravate pack, okay? The Ultravate pack has Ultravate ointment, which is halobetazole, a class one steroid, and lachydrin lotion, packaged together at the same price that you would get Ultravate if you got branded Ultravate. Okay, essentially the same price. But they wanted to see what would happen in patients with psoriasis. And the way this study was designed, it was a double-blind study. Patients had mild disease based on body surface area, but they had multiple thick plaques of psoriasis. So in one group, okay, well, uh, let, me, let me step back. The first two weeks of the study, every patient got the lachydrin and the ultravate twice a day. So they were given an ultravate pack and told them, to, told them to use both the medications twice a day for two weeks. If they got them to clear or almost clear, they put them into two different groups. One group got the lachydrin twice a day during the week, and on weekends they just got a plain ointment with no active ingredient. The other group got the lachydrin during the week, and on the weekends used the ultravate ointment twice a day. Okay. And here's an example of a patient that cleared pretty much within the first two weeks. And on the bottom, you're seeing the maintenance of what happened uh, with that patient uh, on the Ultravate on the weekends. But this is what happened with the Ultravate pack twice a day the first two weeks. Okay? They got the patient pretty much to almost clear. So this patient was then allowed to continue on into the study. So what happened as a result? It, if they were only using lachydrin during the week and did not get the ultravate on the weekends, it was seven weeks before they flared again. If they were using the ultravate on the weekends and the lachydrin during the week, they got 10 additional weeks. So they had a total of 17 weeks, four months, 
before they would relapse back, start to creep back with that psoriasis. So it showed you that you got an extra two and a half months. Um, let's see, four, eight, yeah, almost, almost three months, two and a half months by having them use the Ultravate on the weekends before the disease would start to creep back. So there's some suggestion that the lachydra may have provided some steroid sparing benefit and that you can use the Ultravate intermittently so that they don't have to use it every day. Okay? And that was important. So that's basically showing in another way, time to relapse. This is a study, this particular study is looking at Clobex spray twice a day versus um, Taclinex ointment once a day. The way the study was designed was to be in compliance with the product labeling, and they were able to show at the end of four weeks that 75% of the patients that use Clobex spray were clear, almost clear at the end of four weeks as compared to the Taclinex ointment group where there was 45% that were clear or almost clear at the end of four weeks. Okay. Now, moving on to kind of stepping down in our potency ladder, uh, how many of you are familiar with the triamcinolone 0.2% spray, Kenalog spray? Okay. Well, Kenalog spray, now we have Clobex spray, which is what? Super potent. And we have Kenalog spray, which is mid-potency corticosteroid. This was a new trial that was done with Kenalog spray, because you have to remember, Kenalog spray is an older product that has just been brought back to market. Okay? It, was, it was sort of gone for a while, but it was around when I started in my residency in, in 1983. Kenalog spray was very popular back then. It kind of disappeared for a while, even though I think you could get it, um, but then it's been brought to market again. Okay? This was a study that was designed to basically get clinicians to realize that this, the Kenalog spray, even though it has that nozzle that can help you deliver it to a targeted area, is not only approved for usage on the scalp, it could be used on other areas and it doesn't have to be rubbed in because of the formulation. So if people have trouble reaching certain areas, it can be used there. It doesn't only have to be used on the scalp. So a study was done by Joe Fowler in Louisville to look at a variety of different steroid-responsive dermatoses. It could be seborrheic dermatitis, it could be psoriasis, uh, different eczemas that patients had, 40 patients that were told to use this, and then they looked at how they responded, and they were, they were followed weekly by the investigator. This is Joe Fowler, who's a very prominent dermatologist in the area of contact dermatitis in Louisville. He does a lot of clinical studies. So depending on what he said the patient was told to use or what he decided he wanted the patient to do, they were told they could use the product two or three times a day. And they were followed weekly. If they cleared completely before the end of the study, which was a 28-day study, let's say they came in at, week, at day 21 and they were clear, they were told to stop. Now this is the interim analysis. We're still waiting for the final analysis. But essentially what happened was, and I'll break this down for you because it's kind of hard to follow these graphs, is nine out of 10 patients got to mild or better by the end of the study. And you could see here 59% of them were moderate and 24% of them were clear. So you had 85% of the patients were moderate to severe when they started, and you're getting nine out of 10 to mild or better by the end. Two out of three were clear or almost clear by the end, okay, by the end of the study, or potentially 
before the 28 days in some of those patients. So the performance was very good in terms of the clinical efficacy. So if there's any questions about the efficacy of the spray, this study addresses that. And remember, this included scalp, hands, arms, leg, neck, and trunk. This was not only scalp dermatosis. And that's basically showing you that they started to improve very, very quickly. Okay. Here's an example on the scalp, psoriasis on the scalp, there's psoriasis on the legs. There were patients with eczema, there were patients with seborrheic dermatitis. Okay. One of the things that was interesting that came back in the patient questionnaire was that 40 out of 40 patients, 100% of the patients said they preferred using that spray uh, that particular spray over a cream or an ointment, because I guess all the patients had previously used creams and ointments for their disease, and they preferred the spray on a patient preference basis, which is 40 out of 40 was, was pretty impressive. Now, moving on to clobetazole shampoo, which is what? Clobex shampoo. This was an interesting study to look at maintenance for scalp involvement. And these patients were treated up front with Clobex shampoo daily for four weeks. And it had a pretty dramatic effect. You can see here that the number of patients that had severe disease went from 42% to 4% by the end of the four weeks. So it worked very well to get those patients improved. But then what would happen if you have to maintain them? We have all these great studies that tell us what to do for one month, two months, or three months. Then what do we do beyond that, down the line? Do we have them use it once a week, or twice a week, or three times a week? Well, they did this study over six months with twice a week for maintenance. And it took 144 days for 50% of the patients to relapse. Okay? That can give you a ballpark of what to expect. You're going to have a range better than that and a range worse than that. If they only use the vehicle, at least half the patients relapse within a month. So you had a pretty good effect at maintaining control, at least in some of the patients, with twice weekly use of shampoo on the scalp. None of the patients had HPA axis suppression at any point in time in the study, including the people using it twice a week. Vitamin D analogs, that was a lucky picture. I took all these pictures. That was a lucky picture to get that blue background. Rather be lucky than good sometimes. Who said that? Who said, I'd rather be lucky than good? Does anybody know? Bird Jones, when he was quarterback of the Baltimore Colts. Okay? Rather be lucky than good. And if I was him, I would have felt the same way. Okay. Calcitriol ointment. Vectical ointment. Okay. Vectical ointment has been looked at in a one-year study. Okay. We're all familiar with Dovonex. We had Dovonex ointment, and then that disappeared. We have Dovonex cream. And what was the real value of a vitamin D analog? Steroid sparing effect. When Dovonex first came out, how many people uh, were in dermatology when Dovonex first came out? Okay, most of you were not. When Dovonex first came out, the impression was it was like when Elodil and Protopic came out for atopic dermatitis. Oh, I'm going to try this instead of the steroid. Okay? I'm going to try this instead of the steroid. And what do you think happened? Everybody went back to steroids because they worked a heck of a lot quicker and better. Okay? And they then tried to find a niche for these other products. Okay? 
The niche that vitamin D analogs fell into was to provide steroid sparing benefit or maybe monotherapy for milder disease or for delicate areas where you may not want to use a corticosteroid. Okay? But by and large, you started to see practitioners utilize intermittent therapy where they'd be using the super high potent steroid on the weekend, like a, let's say an Ultravate or whatever, and then they'd use the Dovonex during the week. Well, obviously, when calcitriol ointment came out, Vectical ointment came out, the ointment vehicle was felt to be important because of the experience that Dovonex ointment was perceived to be better than Dovonex cream. They needed to look at what's going to happen over the course of a year because they knew practitioners weren't going to continue this over the course of the year. This is looking at what the Vectical alone would do without a steroid over a year. And it was able to get about half of the patients at six months to at least markedly improved. Some of them would clear, some of them would almost clear. So what that tells us is vitamin D analogs are not going to create a knockout punch. They're going to throw jabs over a 15-round fight. Okay? They're important. They provide a value, just like we showed you with the lachydrin with the other study. But, they, but alone, they're just not going to throw a knockout punch for you. By 52 weeks, you got maybe 64% of the patients, not quite two out of three. So their value is for steroid-sparing benefit. Now, the other question is, you're putting on a vitamin D analog, would you get hypercalcemia? And I can tell you from the data they had, it looks like the answer is absolutely not. There were only 10 out of 324 patients that had any elevations of their calcium levels. They were extremely low. They did not correlate with body surface area, and they did not correlate with timing. So hypercalcemia does not appear to be an issue. And some of these people were up to 35% body surface area. 71 of them were between 25 to 35% body surface area. So hypercalcemia does not appear to be an issue with Vectical. Okay? Don't worry, Paul, there are some new things your dermatologist can do for rosacea because the hot lights were making them flare. He looked pretty good to me. Okay? Now, let's talk a little bit about anti-inflammatory dose doxycycline, which is what? Okay. Aratia. Anti-inflammatory dose doxycycline is aratia. And the bottom line is, is it truly not antibiotic if you give one capsule a day? How many people believe that? How many people don't believe it? How many people wish I would shut up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's coming shortly. Okay. They did studies over prolonged periods of time to prove that it's not antibiotic. They did them in the mouth, and they did them in the skin, and they included P. acnes and staphylococcus. These studies were done over several months. So we have good security that if you give one capsule a day, one erasure capsule a day, it's not antibiotic. Yeah, but does it work as good as a higher dose of doxycycline? That's the key. Or do you have to kick it up a notch, like he's doing right there? We were involved in a study where a patient's got doxycycline 100 milligrams a day, or doxycycline 40 milligram capsules one a day. Exactly the same efficacy in patients with papulopustular rosacea. Okay? So there was no difference. The difference was in side effects. You had nausea, you had vomiting, you had GI upset in the patients that got the doxycycline 100 milligrams a day. That's where the difference was. So the difference was in GI upset. Okay? 
Combination therapy for rosacea, this is a new study that was just published, that's Eric Clapton with Steve Winwood. This was a maintenance therapy study. This was just published a few months ago, and I was involved in this study. Patients were given finacea twice a day, along with doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day, for up to 12 weeks. And that was to get them under control. But then they were put in a maintenance phase where they received either finacea gel twice a day or vehicle twice a day without any doxycycline. What was different about this, because we don't have a lot of maintenance data on rosacea at all. We only have one other study done years ago with other uh, agents was done with the old Metrogel and tetracycline. If the patient felt that they were not adequately maintained, they were felt to be relapsed. So regardless of what they looked like or what the investigator thought, it was really principally based on what the patient thought. So if patients were satisfied with the maintenance, that was a critical issue. And that's, that's a big factor. So obviously, if you gave them doxycycline and finacea in the beginning together, you get a rapid improvement. The majority of them were improved enough to go into the maintenance phase. What happened in the maintenance phase? 75% of the patients felt that they were adequately maintained without any significant relapse if they continued to use finacea gel. That was 33% better than if they were using a vehicle gel. So that showed you that how much chance that they would have in that particular study. What goes around comes around in New Orleans is the voodoo doll, and look at what it shows. Hope you get bad acne, okay? I thought that was terrible. I just saw that about a week ago. Just a couple of things hot off the press. This is a comparative study. This is comparing Durac and Epiduo. The efficacy was the same. The tolerability in the beginning was a little bit worse because of the retinoid in the Epiduo, but it tended to correct itself early on. But it wasn't, it was a little dramatic in the beginning as compared to the Durac, but it was not dramatically so. And you can see here the differences. We know the efficacy with those products. And I'll end with minocycline. This is Solodyne. Solodyne being the only oral antibiotic that's formally approved for acne. Uh, it's the only one that's ever been evaluated for acne based on phase three trials, believe it or not. The only approved oral antibiotic based on phase three trials for acne is Solodyne. Okay? All the others are based on um, sort of assumption data from the past. They weren't proven by uh, phase three trials. So there's two-year data on solidine uh, right now. And with solidine, if you dose it properly at one milligram per kilogram per day, uh, there have been no reports of the hyperpigmentation, there were no cases of symptomatic hepatitis, and there were no reports of drug-associated lupus. Okay? And I'll just end by showing you, now Dorix is the other side of the equation, being enterically coded, what does that offer you? Much lower GI upset. There's substantially better tolerance if you have an enterically coded formulation than if you do not have an enterically uh, uh, encoded formulation. So with that, I'll say, and in the end, the results you make are equal to the time and effort you take. And thank you very much. Time for one or two questions, or anybody have any any questions? What about resistance with solidarity? What about that? What about resistance? You mean antibiotic resistance? Yeah. 
Antibiotic resistance, if you're concerned about it, it being an antibiotic, it would be no different than with any other antibiotic. So my recommendation is if you have patients on, um, on an antibiotic, uh, whether it be solodine or any other minocycline or doxycycline or any chronic antibiotic therapy or topical antibiotic therapy, before too long, I'd make sure you're getting benzoyl peroxide use into the equation. Solodine doesn't protect you from antibiotic resistance. Is the, is the milligram per kilogram a soft antibiotic dose making you more prone? I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that. I don't know that that's been looked at. What about long-term use of erasure for acne? There's only one study that I'm aware of that looked at erasure for acne, and it, was, uh, it took about six months to see any substantial benefit for, for acne. It doesn't appear to be as nearly as dramatic for acne because you don't have any kill against P. acnes. But it may help patients that have milder disease, or if you want to try to step down to that to maintain them, you can try. I can tell you that sometimes it helps, but there are clearly times where it's just not enough. <coughs> but it may be worth a try, especially when you're talking about 13, 14-year-olds and people that don't necessarily want to be on antibiotic doses throughout their teenage years, but sometimes you're stuck. Okay, one more question. What about generic uh, 20 milligram doxycycline twice a day in comparison to the 40 milligram sustained release erasure? Okay, the question, the, the question is 40, uh, 20 milligram twice a day, the generic, uh, which was available as the branded periostat in the past, uh, versus erasure. There's only one uh, way that that has been looked at. There was a, a, a very similarly performed periostat study for rosacea that was very similar to the pivotal trials as erasure. The efficacy of the periostat, if you compare the two studies that are not the same study, okay, say that right up front, but were done in a very similar manner, the efficacy in reducing inflammatory lesions with the periostat was half of the erasure should not have been half, it should have been exactly the same because they're essentially doing the same thing and they have the same pharmacokinetic curves. So what is the difference? People are not taking that second dose. So the compliance is what suppresses the efficacy, not that it wouldn't be effective. If, it, if patients took that 20 milligram twice a day the way they were supposed to, the efficacy would have been the same. The problem is the compliance. Okay, thank you very much. Congratulations on a great meeting.